We're talking to Alec Steele today. Alec is a blacksmith. He's one of my dad and Sai Swan's blacksmith heroes, I would say. They've been talking about and following his work and watching him go for years now. Frankly, just impressed that this young guy is making such beautiful things. He seems to just be a fountain of energy and uh, just a really intelligent and sweet guy all around. So very happy to have him on the show. I know you'll enjoy it. Let's go. I've got this feeling, Alec, um, that you're like a buddy that I knew in college. We were friends back in the day, and I haven't seen you for three or four years, and now we're catching up again for the first time, and I'm like, I haven't seen you forever. What's going on? Now, I know we've never actually spoken, so that's not totally true, but when we were starting our YouTube channel, I remember seeing yours, and you you were ahead of us still, but I remember feeling like, hey, here's a fellow traveler, and so uh, nice to see you again. Yeah. Same. Oh, it's good to see you again too. It's yeah, funny I how remember. That works, isn't it? You know, you can create you can create friendships and relationships without ever having communicated with somebody. People know you're, you know, blacksmithing and on YouTube and everything. But for my sake, will you kind of fill us in over the last four years or three years? Because you, well, actually, maybe you start at the beginning. Let's just get our ducks in order. You started blacksmithing truly when you were a kid, and that right there is interesting because. It tells me your dad must have been interested or had enough like <laughs> friends who had who knew about this this type of craft. So how how is it that you started even blacksmithing when you were a kid instead of just playing with Legos like the rest of us? And then kind of just give us the quick version and for our audience who hasn't watched or listened to your stuff. Well, interestingly, despite the the steel last name, my father was never any sort of metal worker, and uh-huh. so growing up before finding an interest in blacksmithing. I think the only metal work I did was relegated to taking a little bit of chromed steel pipe and making a spear with a little bit of cutting with a hacksaw and just sticking it on a broomstick. But, however, my father was an avid hobbyist green woodworker um, and had picked it up as a hobby a few years before I was born. And so growing up from a tiny young age, he was always in his woodwork shop um, making chairs. He built all the chairs in our, in our family home. Uh-huh. And I was often there with him and from a very, very young age was making things myself. So I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate that from teeny weeny, I was, you know, messing around with chisels and hammers. And he put me on the wood lathe when I was having to stand on a, you know, a 16 inch tall box to be able to reach the wood lathe. And even then, you know, it's up by my chin. Wow. I've, got the, I've got the chisel underneath my arm and all of this. And so I got this brilliant exposure to making things and this brilliant freedom and respect from my parents and trust that I could just make things and be practical and, and be safe even while I was very young, which then when at the age of 11, I went to a county fair and I saw a blacksmith demonstrating, I saw him make a leaf. I was gripped by it and I wanted to give it a go. And so they let me and supported me in piling together a few bricks that we had laying around in the, in the back garden, piling together a little patio paver. I got a foot pump from a little tiny inflatable rubber dinghy, got a little bit of pipe, a little bit of duct tape, hooked it all together, 
went down to the local uh, gas station and picked up a bag of lumpwood charcoal, lit the fire, and started hammering away on steel. And they let me do that, which is wild. An 11-year-old kid in, in the backyard saying, hey, I'm going to light a fire and start hammering on metal. It's a bit strange. But I'm very glad they did let me do it. The local blacksmith was incredibly helpful as well because just three days after I saw them, we rang them up and said, you know, hey, you know, I'm trying to give this blacksmithing a go. I tried hammering on a bit of flat bar to use as an anvil, but a bit of flat bar isn't very heavy. Do you have anything that I could use as an anvil in my back garden? They gave me a 12-inch section of railroad track. I took that home. I put it on a cinder block and my uh, my forge in the ground out of bricks and charcoal and a foot pump and then had a railroad track anvil. And that's when it spiraled and took off. And that's when blacksmithing started. Started tinkering away. I loved it. I was able to go and take a, a lesson here and there from one blacksmith, a lesson here and there from another and build up my workshop little bit by little bit save up Christmas money and birthday money. I bought my first anvil, 240-pound Peter Wright, and uh, that was 90 pounds sterling, so like $130 back in 2009 on eBay. Unbelievable to think how anvil prices have changed since then. And that was the start of it all. It was this hobby that just completely captivated and, uh, and took over my late childhood and early teenage years. How fascinating. So I, I've got to say that a lot of that resonates because at one point when I was nine years old, I had built a little fire in my dad's driveway and he had a little piece around sort of a bench anvil, a piece of one inch plate, about 12 inches in diameter. And I took a pair of slip joint pliers and a S-wing finish hammer. And I took 16 penny nails and I stuck them in that un, um, unaerated, just a campfire until they would get to a dull, dull, high red, dull orange. And I'd take them out and I'd flatten them out on that piece of plate. And I think that's the coolest thing I've ever done. What am I going to do with this? And I remember thinking, I don't know. I don't care, but I'm going to do it again. And I flattened out a pile of 16 penny nails there doing that. But then my situation and my childhood and my parents situation didn't, there was no blacksmith that I knew anything of. And so I wasn't able to make that next step, but I remember I remember in that same time frame that utter compulsion to get that hot and and def, deform that metal with a hammer wielded by your own arm. It was just so compelling. So that's a great, great story. Thanks for sharing that. Well, it almost gives me tears to my eye to hear you said as well, because it just I think it really resonates about this childhood, just intense fascination with something yeah. that you know children can have and children can get so incredibly intensely obsessed with doing something as simple as just deforming a bit of steel. I remember yeah. at one point in my childhood, my father had a boat and I heard that he was going out to his boat to install some sort of little fin on the outboard engine, you know, presumably aluminium. This was, I was even younger at this stage. And I said, well, how are you going to drill a hole in this? He said, you just drill a hole. For the first time in my life, I understood that you could drill a hole in metal, and I never, never imagined that that was possible. And as a, as a child, these small little things that seemed impossible, just like heating a bit of steel and being able to transform that, that nail into a little bit of a flatter nail, that's fascinating to a child. So it's it really is. special that you've had that, that similar fascination and, and interest when you were a child as well. 
And, and let me just say that you relating your story, I've been saying I was nine, and I see now that's a lie. I remember that I was in fifth grade, and so I think in fifth grade you're 11, right? I think, is that how it works around here? I have no idea. Fifth grade, you're about 11? I think... Five, yeah, probably, I, yeah. My Leo's in third grade and he's nine, so that yeah. would be that'd be right. So, so I may have been exactly the same age. I've I've been representing it as nine, probably because of the increased romance of being only nine, which is nonsense. <laughs> I think I was exactly the same age. That is quite something. Yeah, uh, nine, you're still like coloring on the walls and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's when you with hindsight, these stories always like make perfect sense. It's like, well, then the next step he did this and the next step he did this almost as if you, even as a child knew what your future would be. you like knew I'm going to be the best young blacksmith in the world. Da, da, da. But roll forward a few years. And I, I know on your website, you left school in, in, when you're 16, even then you didn't know YouTube wasn't exactly what it is now then. And you didn't know. So talk about that decision and that kind of phase where you're now much older, but still kind of a kid and making big decisions like that. And, um, and what that, what those thoughts were like at that time in your life. So I think that the years between that was just the, the, the whole goal was acquire more tools, acquire a workshop, be able to make things, learn as much as possible and acquire more tools. So invariably, when I was 16 and I was not wanting to be in school, but I was wanting to do the blacksmithing thing that I loved, I wanted to find a way to do more of it. And I decided, well, I'm not getting anything from school, what I thought at 16. Um, and I thought to myself, well, instead of continuing with school, I've got two years to get ahead of the curve and, and start being a blacksmith. It's all I want to do. And it was all that I was obsessed with doing. But for me, it was quite simple. I had the the conviction of a of a teenager that there was nothing possibly wrong that could happen and and that I would make make it work no matter what happened. And so for me it was very simple. You know, there was a little bit of pushback at the time, of course, you know, the healthy pushback from teachers and and and, and headmasters and parents, mm -hmm. healthy pushback, you know, is this the right decision? Um, or is it not? And very warranted to to have had it and I'm grateful that I was stubborn enough to push through it, but it was, you know, it was legitimate pushback that was, that was very helpful and helped set the serious tone of what it was that I was doing. Cause you know, were it not for leaving school, I, I was doing all right in school. I was getting good grades and, and, uh, and could have gone to you know, university and done all sorts of other things. And so it obviously looks like one is throwing a lot of, a lot away when there is a decision that has that much of a risk. But for me, it was just a no-brainer. I wanted to do more blacksmithing and get more tools. Interesting. Interesting. So, so was there, was in that pushback from parents, which is predictable and it's their job, was, did you have a relationship with a headmaster or any of your teachers that gave you pause? Did you have a relationship of trust with any of those people Either your parents or in the education community that made you go, whoa, just a second. I recognize now that this is quite possibly one of, if not the biggest choice I'm going to make in my life. Was there a sober moment where you thought, regardless of how much I love this or I'm compelled by tools and the craft, I have to think carefully about this? Or was it so deeply ingrained in, in your worldview at that moment that it just didn't matter what anybody said? I think being 16 years old, 
being so driven for it mm-hmm. and having you know that that young stubbornness mm-hmm. i don't think anything resonated very 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 deeply yeah. i don't think there was a moment where i went ooh i should really reconsider this because that that's a, a really salient piece of advice i was a hard-headed 16 year old you sure. know the same way hard-headed 16 year olds can get themselves into trouble in all sorts of all sorts yeah. of different ways <laughs> you know so i was true. convicted that this was the right thing to do and and i was probably able to formulate a counter argument to to everything <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that in my head made sense as, as any 16 year old kid can everyone yeah. In the spectrum of like activities that sixteen-year-olds get involved or obsessed with, though, I, I, as a parent and like now that I'm deep into adulthood, I wouldn't push a kid away from black. I, there's a lot of other hobbies that kids can really get into that are <laughs> that are less uh, productive. And when you see a kid working hard and learning, I mean, you know, you don't you can stand back a little bit and be like, hey, let's just you know let this guy do what he's do what he's gonna do so i don't know it doesn't surprise me terribly that um nobody chained you down but i it's just amazing (laughs) um so that has unfolded over the next 10 years um let's just say to to where you are now but aside from blacksmithing you've you've had to learn quite a bit of other um skills in order for your blacksmithing to make a living and and unfold in this way obviously videography and business and hiring and all of these other things. So to what do you attribute or, or how did, how did learning those skills, uh, how were those picked up or how have you gone about learning and adding that all to your repertoire? A lot of this stuff has just come through necessity, um, which is there is a problem. I need a, need a solution type of learning, learning on Google, learning on the internet, trying to find courses that are useful, but to kind of, bullet point a few areas which are probably most notable the videography stuff because the very beginning of when boxing was my full-time career i wasn't making youtube videos for a living but i then saw that people outside of the field of blacksmithing um you know in the sales sales industry or or whatever other industry piano were putting out these online classes and these online classes would seem like a smart business move to me because you know you can make an online class and then that online class can sell indefinitely it is a semi-passive income source and so little 17 year old me looked at that and said oh that's interesting what if i can try and do something similar Um, and so i made some online classes and in trying to make online classes, I had to film with the camera and try and make it look presentable and as professional as I could have done at the time. I'm a little bit out of chronology here because I have always had an interest in creative things like photography and like video. When I was you know, a young teenager, my mother bought me a secondhand little small DSLR uh, camera, little Canon thing. I used to love taking photos with it. And when I was in school, there was, um, a, in one of the classes that I took, one of the subjects was a photography subject, which was not necessarily about teaching students how to take photos, more about teaching students how to 
go through the process of getting better at something, make a portfolio, like here's a subject building. And now you need to, you know, have a portfolio that showcases the development of your photographic skills through through doing the photography of buildings in, in whatever area you are. And so I was able to go through the process of needing to take photos. And, and I really started to like taking photos and I got my eye in for the things that I appreciated. So it meant that then when I'm trying to do this online school, I've got a little bit of an interest in visual things, photos and videos. And it helps me set up the camera and try and think about composition, helps me, you know, think about the cuts that I'm making and what the exposure is looking like. And it also gets me interested to make it look good. Then as that year progressed, a gentleman named Casey Neistat on YouTube, who if you've been on YouTube, I'm there's a very good chance you've heard of the name Casey Neistat. Yeah. I found him and he was doing these daily vlogs where he was documenting his life. It looked beautiful. The editing was phenomenal. It wasn't just, you know, pointing a camera in his face and just talking about what he was doing. It was beautiful cinematic shots. He was setting up, uh, setting up his shots and then walking back through the frame. You know, the effort was massive to produce these videos and the result was, was, was gorgeous. That really, really inspired me to kick up a notch in uh, in what I was doing and make better videos. They also showed me that it was possible to make videos every day, and in his case, be very, very successful doing it. So wanting a little bit of a slice of that pie, I said to myself, well, I'm going to start making videos every single day, and I'm going to try and make them as good as possible. And so I dove right into every single day trying to make a video from what I did in the workshop and trying to make it as good as possible. And so when you have a camera in your hand all day, every single day, and then every single evening you plug the footage into your computer, you get an entire repetition of not only filming, but immediately reviewing the material that you filmed, which is this perfect repetition of seeing, well, that footage sucks. This is out of focus. The framing here is lovely. The exposure here is awful. I need to go up on ISO, down on ISO. These, these perfect daily repetitions of seeing the entire process of making a YouTube video and then trying to make it better every single day and trying to squeeze as much out of each day as I could. And it's, I mean, the best way to learn anything is with targeted repetitions where you're focused on the mistakes and focused on creating a, 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 a an improvement to stop that mistake from happening in the future. And I created this thing for me, which was I'm making a video every day and I damn well get to get better, get better at it. And it just forced me to find as much information, as much inspiration and forced me to do the practice to increase those skills. That, that's so that's awesome. And as you're doing it, I'm thinking of hammering practice, right? I tell kids, if you want to be a blacksmith, go buy 40 pounds of eight penny nails and rig up a block and drive them all in and then we'll talk. And then and then it occurred to me that it's a waste of time for a kid to approach nailing like a carpenter where you turn each nail and start it and drive it. You need to start about 20 nails and then get that repetitive practice you were just talking about and come across a line of nails, improving your swing and improving your accuracy. And what you just described is is a hammering practice for videography. You know, set that trap for yourself. If I'm going to do one every single day, and then the trap will drive your improvement. That was inspiring, Alec. I, lo I love that. And I hope that everybody that's listening to this podcast locks down on that. That's that's a huge, that's a huge um, 
competitive advantage in learning something is to set a deadline for yourself that somehow drives itself. That, that's awesome. Thank you for that. There's a really brilliant book that explores this idea. It's called The Talent Code. The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, C-O-Y-L-E. And I heard about this book because I have now at this point in my life, a, a really strong passion and interest uh, in dog training as a hobby. And it was a required reading for a, a somewhat prestigious dog training course that I took. And this book resonated with me so well because it helped articulate how in some parts of my career, my life and, and et cetera, I've been able to do things well and also highlights how in some parts of my career, life, et cetera, I've been able to do things not well. The book, The Talent Code, it talks about, it begins talking about how it is that humans learn and how it is that humans get better at things. It talks about a process called myelination, which is where the neural path, I'm going to make an awful explanation of this. There's going to be people you know, smashing their, their dashboard here saying, Alec, you've got it wrong. But I'm going to try my best to summarize in a few seconds, which is every time you fire a neural path, that gets insulated with myelin. And the more you fire that path, the more it's insulated and the more embedded that neural path is. And therefore, the easier it is for your body to fire the neurons that make a certain thing happen. Instinctively swing a hammer and it hit the right place. The complexity of that is absurd. How on earth a brain can just pick up any hammer after yep. years of practice, any hammer, close their eyes, swing it and hit where they expect it to. That's mind blowing. And that's because of myelin and, and the way that mm -hmm. we learn. It then goes on to talk about why is it that certain places in the world, certain schools, the uh, why it is that the, for example, the Brazilians are so good at soccer? It explores why these certain areas have this conglomeration of talent. This, this, why they are hotbeds of talent. That's the word I'm looking for, mm -hmm. and it's often because of the way that they approach the practice of their craft. So instead of the soccer players practicing on a large field the full-size ball where they spend a whole lot of time running and getting tired and the actual time on contact with the ball is limited. Well, in Brazil, there's a lot more practice on much smaller pitches with smaller balls where there's so many more passes happening and it's a speedier game. And so the amount of repetitions of actually playing with the ball is increased it. and it's focused so much more down to a precise practice, mm. this precise targeted repetitious practice that focuses on mistakes that builds talent. I'm not trying to get too full of myself and say I was building talent or anything. It's not what I'm trying to do, but it was interesting because it reminded me of the very first steps that I took in my learning of videography and YouTube. But it also reminded me very much of the education that I got from Brian Brazil, who was the largest influence that I ever had in, in the blacksmithing craft and taught me more than anybody and, and just set me up for set me up for everything that I could ever possibly want to do in blacksmithing because of his teaching. Anything super, super, super focused, targeted practice that was meticulous, it was focused on every single blow and a reasoning behind it. And it was a really helpful way of accelerating learning. The Talent Code is a brilliant book that really helps set set a good groundwork for a, for a theory as to how to approach learning something. That's Isn't it awesome. funny how uh, people go to school to learn, but I'm just kind of amazed how much you've learned 
<laughs> not in school and you're still absorbing and like picking things up and it's kind of sad to take kids and I'm just thinking imagine you at 16 wanting to learn and and having the courage to go after it on your own as opposed to learning things in other words at school we did not do much um, mylar learning or whatever the name of it it was we didn't myelinate the connections in high school much no no there's not a lot of that happening in school or maybe even in university in a lot of settings it's uh, i don't know what you call the opposite of that school you <laughs> so, call it school <laughs> so actually so this is a follow up question so that's a great recommendation on a book title but what i hear in your voice and in your um, in your vocabulary and in your articulation is that you've spent a lot of time reading, but it doesn't sound like your schedule has allowed a lot of time for reading. Am I am I misrepresenting that? Do you read? Are you a reader? And if not, tell me how you've learned to speak like a reader. I don't do a lot of reading. At one point, I was doing a lot of listening to audiobooks. Okay. Um, I, I used to churn through the audiobooks and listen to as much as listen to as much as possible, which you know. That was especially at the time of the beginning of the YouTube stuff and the beginning of trying to, you know, trying to think about how how can I make a business, you know, and make a living and things like that. I used to listen to a ton of audiobooks. That's um, it. At this point in time, I don't listen to a whole lot of them. What I was really, really fortunate of, though, was that I, I grew up with parents that were, my mother is foreign, but she has a very good grasp of, of English grammar um, and a very good grasp of the English language. My father is uh, an older gentleman, so he grew up in the 40s and 50s and speaks uh, speaks with a very well educated, um, very well educated tone. Speaks very intelligently, and so I really attribute and I'm appreciative. What I mean, I'm using I'm using words poorly here. I am very grateful that. There was a, a really good focus on speaking well mm-hmm. when I was a child, not for fear of consequences of not speaking well, but because I was around people that were that were speaking well. It was I your language. Was fortunate. Yeah, exactly. And I was fortunate to go to schools uh, that were private schools where there was a very high standard required in terms of how it is that you speak and how it is that you comport yourself to others. And I think that all helped and contributed a lot to being able to, you know, maybe find it, find it easier to speak more, uh, maybe more clearly. I oftentimes find myself rambling a whole lot, but I do appreciate and I'm thankful for the voice that I have. And I do know that the voice that we have isn't just our own, it's the product of our environment, our upbringing, the people we're around, and things that we're exposed to, and and so I uh, I've inherited inherited that. That's a very that's a very complete answer. Okay, that is a very complete answer. Um, and the audio books are clearly part of that. But to have grown up learning that language, so I'm thinking of the musical that uh, from the probably 60s or 70s, My Fair Lady. Are you familiar with My Fair Lady and Dr. Henry Higgins? And the premise of the thing was that this this speech snob who was a professor of speech in London took a bet that he could take a flower girl off the street in London whose English was terrible and educate her in speech. And so you are sort of a Henry Higgins case study, right? I mean, you it, it's the inflection, the accent, and the word choice that Dr. Henry Higgins would have approved of, Alec. And so... 
And so thank you for validating my assertion about the reading with audiobooks, because in my opinion, it's not the same as reading, but you have the advantage of hearing how people are using tone inflection and emphasis in, in their, so anyway, you speak very well. It's a pleasure I, to listen to. I think that the practice is more important than the reading though, because there's a lot of people who might read yeah. a lot, or in other words, Alec, for you, you got a lot of targeted practice or whatever the term was for repetition, doing something a lot, teaching and speaking, uh, when it, when you only get one shot at it, um, but also when you can edit, but still you, when you have to do things multiple times, it's a waste of time. So you you probably do a lot of things in one take. Um, but I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about myself in this way, but maybe even older folks who are kind of quiet and introverts, you, when you're an introvert, when you don't speak a lot, you don't get a lot of practice speaking. And so then when you do, you make more mistakes and you say, um, and you flub and that does not incentivize you to speak and open your mouth more. And you can't get your ideas out as clearly the first time, which doesn't incentivize you to like open your mouth and yeah. take the risk to like jump into a conversation or even a debate or a negotiation of some sort. And it, it it's like a self-fulfilling pro it could be like a self-fulfilling prophecy where introverts and quiet folks and people who don't practice using language can kind of really be in a deep rut as opposed to that target of practice, getting the skill, and then you're, you know, off and running. It's awesome. Um, turning I the page a little bit. The, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I, I really liked your comment on the self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, the, the, the more you struggle with anything, the less you do, <laughs> and therefore the more you struggle. It's yeah, very yeah. easy to fall, fall into a dark hole with something. And I can, I can totally appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, let's turn the page and talk about blacksmithing a bit. And my first question, while not technical, I, I'm curious, what, how do you see, uh, the impact forged and fire has made on blacksmithing and people's interest in blacksmithing over the last, uh, few years? I think it's huge. I think it's huge. I don't think though I have a really accurate touch point or metric to say that it has, has had an impact. I've seen the impact with my own eyes, other than seeing that there has been a very good number of people in my YouTube comments that have mentioned Forged in Fire. And that here and there, I have seen people that have got into Blackmailing and Bladesmithing that have said that they were um, inspired by Forged in Fire. But my I don't have I don't have a lot of uh, personal touch points where I've seen its effect, but I feel like it must have had a massive mm -hmm. effect. You know, bringing it to the mainstream, making it uh, making it accessible for anybody to see and be interested in blacksmithing mm -hmm. and metalwork. That's mm -hmm. the the real challenge of anybody that's trying to bring a craft like this to the wide world is how do you make it entertaining, interesting, and understandable to the general populace that isn't in this niche hobby. That's why a lot of people have problems with a show like Forged in Fire. You know, oh, they don't like it for this reason. And I've said things like this too. Oh, I don't like Forged in Fire for that reason. Or I don't like it for that reason. But I do like it for the fact that it makes it appetizing to the general viewer on History yeah. Channel that has no interest. Appetizing for them to watch people do it and get an admiration for it. So I think it yeah. must have had a huge effect, but I don't have enough personal touch point um to have seen it a lot first time so, so my my um uninformed my assumption is that the huge spike in anvil prices is largely attributed to forged in fire i mean the, the anvil prices jumped in the u.s 
before they began to jump in Europe, as I understand it. Um, and it seems to be directly correlated, perhaps caused by Forged in Fire, and an increase in interest in people realizing if they have a little space and they know somebody with an anvil. And Because I think, I think that anvil prices have appreciated faster than almost anything else. Um, as a per, you know, as a as a percentage of growth in in cost, it's it, they've just they've spiked, and I don't know what else to attribute it to, other than forged in fire, YouTubers. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, there is that, which is a similar <laughs> dynamic, right? I mean, it's blacksmithing as entertainment in your front room. Mm -hmm. It's probably like a chicken and egg situation because they wouldn't have made that show if they didn't if there wasn't some growing interest in blacksmithing. Yeah, and. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know a lot. I've never actually watched an episode at all. And I, uh, I'm like you, Alec, I don't know anybody who, I should say the people I do know who do watch it, they're not the high achievers in life. They're the people who watch TV all day. So, <laughs> but that being said, they understand blacksmithing in some cases really well. I got one buddy who he, he really knows a lot about heat treating and all this stuff. And I'm like, I've, I've picked up uh, a thing or two about it. Same kind of way just from watching it. But I don't know. I was impressed. I was like, wow, you, you could really do this. And he's like, you know, he wants to. So, um, there you go. So anyways, in terms of blacksmithing, what are you working on these days and what you've, you kind of touched a lot of areas of blacksmithing over the years and, um, explored all the nooks and crannies of it. So where are you at these days? What are you working on? What are you enjoying in blacksmithing? That kind of stuff. You know, at some point in time, I think I'm probably going to have to stop calling myself a blacksmith because I, I really stretch out into all sorts of, you know, different fields in metal work. So at some point in time, that'll, that'll probably have to wear off. I'll have to call myself yeah. just a generalist maker yeah. of things. <laughs> Shop <laughs> because at, at the very beginning, yeah, who knows? Who knows? At the very beginning, I was making tools. You know, this, this is the stuff I learned from Brian Brazil. I was making tools really focused on blacksmithing technique. At this point in time right now, I am trying to search for projects that are meeting a, a bunch of criteria that are really subjective um, and difficult to pin down, which is my primary focus is on making interesting and entertaining YouTube videos. So that's primary focus. With that, I have to try and pin down the things that are going to be interesting to me to make. Because if it's not interesting to me, really difficult to fake it to the viewer. Yeah. And so I need to try and find the things that I'm interested in. And then there's this interplay between both of them, which is the interests of the viewers are constantly changing. Every time I make one type of project, the interest in a similar type of project is likely going to deplete. So I need to try and find a different style of project. When I make the one type of project, my interest in that project is going to deplete. So I need to find a different type of project. I've got to mesh these kind of variables up mm -hmm. and hopefully make these interesting videos. Right now, I don't think I can pin down where my keenest interests are in metal work. I'm currently making a Zippo lighter, which is fascinating. Some bending tiny weeny bits of sheet metal, which I've never done before. And it's, so much simpler than my brain could have ever imagined to you know, use a little bender and a vise and make these bends. But it's been fascinating to me to give this a go because I usually don't mess with sheet metal and I've never had a lot of experience with it. So it's a Zippo lighter now. Earlier in the month, 
was doing a lot more forging projects. So I was uh, making a thumb screw. I recently made an arrowhead extractor. That was a that was a forged project, and I really enjoyed that. But then, you know, going back in time even further from there, I was at the engraving bench um, doing gold inlay in a shamshir. It's all over the map. I can't target down where my keenest interests are. I also can't target down where the viewers' interests are. But every time we start a video, we just hope. Yeah. <laughs> we hope that you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get a catch. If that makes sense. Wow. And that the uh, official catch. So, so your conversation provokes a lot of questions, and I, I would love to talk to you for longer. Okay, but having said that, your arrowhead extractor was that provoked by the documentary about the arrowhead that had to be extracted from the back of the head of the prince, one of the one of the King Henrys over there when he was sixteen. And I, I wish I had the da I wish I had these dates right, but I watched this documentary about the king sent his son off to war over there, presumably against the French, and he took an an armor piercing arrow right alongside his nose. Okay, and the arrowhead went right to the back of his head, and they tried to pull it out, and the shaft came out. Was your arrowhead extractor provoked by that story where the shaft came out, and they went to the premier blacksmith in the land and said, you have got to make a set of tongs that will slide into the prince's head all the way to the back and engage the socket in that armor-piercing tip and pull that thing out? Is that what you saw and were thinking of, and is that what you made? So the inspiration for me learning about the tool I think came from a YouTube comment. Um, it probably would have come from a YouTube commenter, but it is that story. It's King Henry V. I think, I hope I don't get this wrong. I will find out in the comments. I think 1410. You're absolutely right. right. 16 year old him. He gets an arrow in the face and uh, it doesn't come out. And so John Bradmore, who is a surgeon, designs this tool that picks it up from the inside and and pulls it up. It's exactly that story. Imagine wow. being the blacksmith that had to make that. Wow. You do not want to mess that up. Yeah. Don't, don't getting, leave us hanging. Did shot. they get it out or what happened? We got to know, we got to know how it ends. Oh, it's a wild story. It is. I, 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 I probably referenced the, the, the documentary that you're talking about that would go through it in wider detail, but some of the salient points of it were they got it out and then they used progressively smaller dowels coated in honey that's right as the wound healed and as it healed these progressively smaller dowels pushed less and less in with honey for the wound to heal and he lived so the, so that the wound would close so that his puncture wound would close and not just separate indefinitely out of the side of his nose and he lived think of that think of the 16 year old laying there while they slid that back into your head clear to the back it went the, the piercing round didn't go through the back of the cranium, but that's where it lodged. And so was he able to function? I mean, Henry V, right? He has a long and storied career as king. He the brain damage must have been an acceptable level, right? Yeah, I mean, he lived. Interestingly, he has all his portraits done only from one side. Oh my. And I think that's part of the story of that is he must have had, you know, some large scar. And uh, if I understand correctly, all the portraits that you see painted of him are all from the side where you can't see the scar. And so wow. presumably he must have been a little bit disfigured. But unbelievable to think that that worked in the 1400s, you know, that somebody would survive that, not get horrible infection and, and die. 
Yeah. They probably like recreated the accident on like 10 peasants before they tried it on him. <laughs> practice, practice, <laughs> practice. Okay. Perfect <laughs> practice makes that. perfect performance. <laughs> what a day. Yeah, I mean, exactly. They, they, probably, they knew what to do. <laughs> they probably set up your trap, right? We're going to do one a day until yeah. we're ready to do this. So we really know how. Okay. So, <laughs> so I have a couple other technical questions. Okay. And um, so for, well, Wait, first not, of all, Alec, we told you we keep you an hour. Are you okay staying on here with us? We're after. I, I've got all the time in the world. Okay. All right. Go ahead, Dan. Okay. So just on a personal level. So I, being a builder, being a carpenter guy, it, it was automatic for me when I was, so I was given the entire contents of a railroad roundhouse blacksmith shop about 17 years, 16 years ago, 400 pieces, boom. And I had been a welder and a fabricator and a carpenter. So I had to learn to blacksmith, but it was late in life. So I'll never, I, I, I don't have the, I, I don't know that I'll ever get the 10,000 hours, right. That, that it is rumored to take, but I was immediately drawn to architectural ironwork because it, I could capitalize on that because I was a contractor. What are your feelings? Do you like, are you drawn to, have you been drawn to architectural bigger pieces in bigger spaces, engaging with other people's finished products and trying to satisfy the design impulses of the matron of a house who thinks she knows what she wants, but doesn't until she sees it. Have you engaged with that much or have you mostly been inside the shop making these beautiful pieces that can be picked up and carried out of your shop? What, what scale of work do you like and what were you drawn to? You know, when I started, all the blacksmiths that I saw having any sort of a career or business were all doing architectural ironwork. Yeah. So when I started, I thought that was where I was going to go down. And of course, this is one of the moments of being 16 that was ridiculously stupid because I had absolutely no training or education in architectural ironwork, fitting up, um, laying up laying out accurately. Um, I had no idea how any of this worked. I didn't know how things would be installed properly. I wouldn't have known how to communicate with a contractor to have them help install anything. And so I started and I did a few architectural pieces, like a couple of railings, you know, the odd uh, window security bar grills, you know, the odd, mm -hmm. the odd thing like that. But quickly realized that my talents were nowhere near suited to that and i Got had it. to make do with the knowledge that i had uh, my the 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 skill set that i had at the time little did i know how narrow it was i could make a hammer that was pretty nice and i could make the tools to make a hammer that were pretty nice mm -hmm. and i thought i i thought i had the whole world of blacksmithing to be able to uh, to be able to dip my toes in but it was an abysmal failure I just don't have the experience and the repetitions in that side of things um, to have been able to make money doing it and to even do a good job at it. So it was an abysmal failure when I tried to do any sort of architectural ironwork. Got it. And I'm got a massive amount of respect for people that are able to able to do that and especially turn a profit with it because it's yeah. hard work. It's especially you know forging architectural ironwork. It's, it's really hard work um, with um, you know, potentially a clientele that is not used to the type of prices that would be required. Exactly. For, for work. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great answer. I, I, I understand that. Um, I, I have a technical question about punching axe eyes and hammer eyes. So I I've made, oh, a half a dozen. Um, uh, no, I, I made 
I've made a few tools of that sort. I lucked out and and got an eye through a couple of axes that I sent to friends. Um, and it it was it was really just sort of luck because it's hard to get an axe eye through an axe billet, right? And so uh, there's a fellow who you may know by name. He's met you at a at Andy Donor is a blacksmith over here in the in the United States, and he was in our community for a while. And he showed me a hammer eye punch that had a very shallow four-sided pyramid ground on the contact side with just a little bit of a point at the center of the world. Do you do that or do you have a flat punch when you start, when you punch a, a, a hammer eye or an axe eye in? So if I'm understanding your description well enough, it sounds a lot like the style of tooltip geometry that Brian Brazil started making, making popular. And that type of tooltip geometry is what I've used to punch all the hammers that I ever made uh, with a striker, somebody swinging a sledgehammer, and it's really effective for the fact for the for the main reason that you can line it up on a center punch hole, yeah, and it reduces the drag as the tool comes through the hole, yeah. So you get the benefits of being able to punch a hole and get a clean plug out without the downside compared to a normal flat punch of not being able to line it up, yeah, neatly. You can line it up. So it's a brilliant tool geometry. Um, where it, in fact, when we punch hammers at the shop that's in Montana, we're, we're producing hammers. And I've got a fantastic, uh, fantastic guy there that's making hammers for the, for the company. And the punches that we use to punch those hammers are just flat bottomed punches. And over time, they wear, they actually end up a little bit rounded, uh-huh. but it's under a hydraulic press. So there's a ton of force, 25 tons of force, in fact. And the billet's really hot, and so it just goes through no problem. But when you're working with a striker, that slightly reduced drag of the, of the point on the punch can be helpful. And yeah, punching holes is difficult. There's a, yeah. lot of, there's a lot of variables, which is you don't want the punch too thin, otherwise it's going to heat up too quick and bend. You don't want it too thick, otherwise you've got too much resistance. You drag down too much material as you punch, mm-hmm. which affects mm-hmm. the final form factor of what it is that you make. There's all sorts of these different, different, different variables that are hard to nail down. Um, yeah, punching holes is tough. <laughs> yeah, it is. It it is tough. I mean, it's its own, it's its counterpart to the difficulty of architectural ironwork. I mean, it's tough fitting an exact space and not marring the the finishes. But doggone it, it is hard to orient both axes centered through a block, particularly a thin sort of a billet. It's just it's a challenge, and I, I'm going to be working on that, trying to get better. Um, so with an axe eye, do you would you Use a progressive series of punches. Okay, so two questions. I, I have thought about drilling a pilot, and I've done that a few times. You know, I can get in my dr- in my drill press and get a nice square plum true pilot. Is is there a way to coordinate that with the Brian Brazil geometry on a punch tip where where the the the, the center of that punch actually falls into a drilled pilot? Is that helpful, or d- is the likelihood of the circumference of that pilot representing on the inside of your eye when you're done? A problem. What are, your, what are your thoughts about drilling a pilot that you know is square, that's in the right spot on both sides, as making kind of a track for your punch to follow? It, it's, I've not really done that. I've just thought the thought. What do you think? I don't know if I've ever drilled a pilot for a punch hole. So my experience is limited. A few assumptions that I would have would be that you probably would get a straighter hole because the punch is going to have a slight path of least resistance. 
Yes. And so it's going to it's going to veer to have as, as little resistance as possible as, it, as it's punching. So it's probably going to be on a straight track. The one downside that I see potentially happening is when we punch holes in tools, we like punching the holes. It becomes a little bit of a semantics game. But we like punching the holes as opposed to slitting the holes. Yes. Punching the holes would involve punching all the way down to the bottom, sometimes the middle, turning it over, punching from the other side, and then shearing out a small plug. Yes. So if you punched through a two-inch billet, you'd go down to the bottom about an eighth inch or a quarter inch from the anvil face, you'd flip it over, you punch back from the top, and that little eighth inch or quarter of an inch of material pops out, mm-hmm. and the result is a really neatly sheared hole. Similar to the way, similar to the way an industrial shear would just push and shear a plug straight out mm-hmm. through a corresponding die beneath it. That's kind of what we want with a punch. It's just that we make the die and the material through the first hole. Slitting a hole would be different because it involves using a chisel. You cut through the material from the first side, from the top, punching this chisel down. The geometry of the chisel is much more slender. So as opposed to a more obtuse punch profile, it's much more acute. You then turn it over when you're halfway, perhaps, or you're near the bottom. You go in through the other side. But because of the geometry of the tool being thinner, as opposed to shearing out a plug, what it tends to do is it tends to start pushing this little bubble of steel back down the first side of your hole. That bubble of steel pushes and pushes and pushes. And because the tool geometry is so thin, it's able to stretch and stretch that tiny little bit of steel and pull it down until finally it reaches its tearing point. It tears and you cut this hole open. And the theory or, or reason behind why we, it, you know, certainly those of us that have studied from Brian Brazil or the people that have learned from him, don't like that split hole is because it typically makes a smaller hole profile that requires more drifting, and you end up with a lot of rag inside the hole. Yeah. So it's a little bit, there's these cold shuts in there. There's going to be some sort of cold shut that happens when you punch a hole, but it's going to be much less than when you chisel a hole. Mm-hmm. So going back to the point, when you have a hole that's been pilot drilled through a billet, you don't, I think, I'm theorizing here because I haven't done it, but my theory is, you're not going to be able to punch out a clean plug at the end of it. And you're going to probably end up pulling this little bubble of steel down when you come in from the other side. Mm-hmm. And you'll end up having the effect of chiseling a hole mm-hmm. because you no longer have that same support in which would have been <coughs> half of it is gone. It's yep. been drilled out. So you may have slightly more cold shut on the inside of the eye, which, to be honest, is probably not going to be a huge problem. Would there be, on a finished piece, the remnants of the drilled hole? That would depend on how far you're drifting. Yeah. Because if you are to, you're trying to make a one-inch hole, and you drill a half-inch hole, and you slot punch it open, and there's very little force and, and, and forming pressure put on the inside walls of the hole, the chances are you might have a little bit of a remnant of, uh, of that drilled hole there because the drift wasn't able to push the material around enough to yeah. get rid of that completely. But when you're forging a hammer or an axe, part of that process involves needing to hammer 
on the cheeks while the drift is in it. Yep. Pinching the drift between the <coughs> cheeks and forcing the cheeks upon the drift, which is going to have the effect of forging that drilled hole remnant away, unless yep. the drilled hole was large. So you probably just find a drill a hole. But the easiest way to make sure that you get straight and true holes when you're punching is to try and counteract the, the human variable by turning that bullet around after every single blow. Yes. Because invariably your striker never <coughs> hits a They're going to hit at some sort of an angle that's unique to them. You as the person directing the tools are never going to hold the punch perfect. You're never going to hold the steel perfect. And so when you turn the bullet around, you start to eliminate variables because you even out any inconsistency. Your punch could be going down at a 10-degree angle from the right. You turn it around. Well, you're now holding your punch down 10 degrees from the right, but on the other side of the billet. And so turning every single blow is how you really eliminate the, 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 the risk of punching a, an erroneous hole. Because it also, back to targeted practice, it allows you to look at the result of each blow yes. and make a targeted change for the next blow, as opposed to what is a common technique, which works very well and is very possible to get good at, which is to hit multiple times on the punch. You hit multiple times on the punch, you now have three times the risk of error to correct as opposed to one single bit of error to correct. And you've committed yourself so far down the process, there's just you just cannot take out that that uh, trajectory that you've established when you're that far into the billet. Sorry, you, I, at least I've, yes, that turning every single time, that's a, that's a key thing. And as I think about the times I've had success and the times I've failed, it's that if I've done multiple blows from one side, the likelihood of failure is much higher than turning every time. That's great, great intel. Thank you. Um, very, very glad that helped. One more blacksmithing question for you. Um, and that is, I'm thinking about our friend, Cy Swan, who sells knives and he, kind of engraves his name on him. And what would you, what, Dad, we got to get this fixed for size so we can get yeah. his logo on there better. And you've got an, I don't know if yours are laser etched on. I was just admiring them on your website. You probably attempted lots of different methods for touch marking a knife or a blade. What, what, what would you recommend for, for Cy, who's 83? He can, he's Eight. really smart. He can learn anything, but 86. ideally we're not getting him like a laser machine or something, but how, how can we help him get his, logo on there better how's he doing it now dad it's like a it's like a dremel or something he just takes a dremel tool and he just puts his signature on there and it's very distinctive and it's reasonably consistent but i i'm with you nate it would be if we could acid etch or something what should he do he's always in a hurry right he is a time-driven man which is one of the reasons that blacksmithing appeals to us right time is an element you're losing heat but he doesn't have time to mess around in his mind What, what would you tell him to do I, I love I love the uh, the the just authenticity and just <laughs> personal touch of hand signing a blade with a Dremel. I love that. I think that there's something really special about that. But the most common approach, as far as I can understand, for the small batch knife maker or one piece custom knife nature maker, is to use um, electro etching. I really hope I'm using I'm using the words correctly because it's been a little while since. I have bought one because when I sign my work, I either touch mark hot or forget to touch mark my work at all. (laughs) (laughs) That often happens. (laughs) But I have electro etched, and it basically involves um, having a stencil 
that can be made by somebody with a, some sort of cutter, little blue stencil that has your logo. You stick it on your blade. You have a little crocodile clip. You clip it on. There's this little solution. You put it on top of a of a of a little foamy device. It's also connected to some sort of magic electrical current. It goes on. It frazzles the uh, uncovered area because your stencil is covering the rest. And happy days, you got your logo. But I'm not the best person to talk to about it. I'm sure there's tons of information Googling electroetching knives. There'd be tons of information. And I think a unit might be as little as 100 or $200, which, you know, up front can be, can be a good chunk of change, but it does allow for some consistency. Yeah, we, let's get that for him and get him yeah. set up with that. Let's scope that out. Yeah, that, that's really good. Um, I looked on your website. Are you 24 or 26? 24. How old are you? You're 24. I think I'm 24. So I so I turned 64 two days ago. Okay, and so what? Right? I mean, 40 years is 40 years. And what I'm going to say, please don't take it as condescending, but it's astounding to me, Alec. You know, medically, a man's frontal lobe in his brain stops growing when he's 23. Okay, now that's pretty astounding when I think about uh, how how fully developed and well-rounded and your um, what you bring to the world is so uncommon for a 24-year-old young man. And I just hope that I live long enough to see what you are when you are Nate's age at 40. And I'm not going to see you when you're my age at 64. But, boy, you bring a lot to the table, man, that I didn't expect. I didn't expect this interview to be anything like this. And so so thank you. I, I hope that the, that the people my age and Nate's age who listen to this interview go out of their way to share it with with the people in their lives who are in their teens and in their 20s and and kind of hold out Alex Steele as an example of somebody who didn't fall into the so well publicized and probably over exaggerated traps of video games and and idle time and sort of dissipating your youth with no outcome i i think in a lot of ways you are a role model that you don't see yourself as that that you are modeling uh, achievement at a young age that that societies don't expect from our young people anymore. So I salute you, man. I salute you, and I just hope you keep doing what you're doing. Well, it's it's incredibly sweet, and I really really appreciate that. It's uh, it's it's very heartwarming to hear. But I I I think it's a I think it's a little bit over the top, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just me, just trying to make a living. I know, and, but your brain uh, was still growing a year ago. I mean, at 23, your brain was still growing. Those he's trying to insult connect. you, Alex. Said he's trying to sound more uh, more British by ripping on your yeah, developing yeah. brain here. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I you do when you have a, a full, fully grown brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, I, so I, I watch a lot of Benny Hill humor. <laughs> it's also, it's almost as much a... Um, tons, of, tons of flaws. And I've got it's almost as much a... Oh, sorry. It's almost as much a... a uh, excite or not uh, advice for parents. In other words, when there's a kid yeah. Yeah. who's showing passion and who wants to do something and ambition and ambition, let get out of their way and let them do it. And, and, and obviously when it's productive, not, not when they're like vandalizing things or something, but yeah, there's a lot of parents who try to cram kids into this form that thinking that we're going to pour them in this form and then we're going to break the form off and we'll have a nice, smart adult. And, I think that's got that's just a mistake, and you are the uh, poster child, Alec, of letting a kid follow his heart here and and blaze his own way. And if they're ambitious and energetic, man, sky's the limit. Yeah, 
I think I would rather phrase it as it is not me that is the poster child for that, but it is some components of the journey that I have been on can be the poster child for that. Yeah. Because, well, you yeah. know, me myself, I'm just, just a guy trying to get things done, full of flaws and errors and tons of mistakes. You know, I'm, I would be a false idol for any, any young person to look up to uh, in its entirety and say, this guy is the person who's, you know, who, who I'm going to try and take for inspiration and try and, and, try and follow in that path. There are potentially, and I, and I think that there probably are, some lessons to be learned and the odd bit of inspiration for people that want to, you know, do certain things. But I also hope there's also things that people can learn to not do based on the, based on the things that I do. And so I appreciate it a lot. But I think and, there's and, little segments that people might be able to take and hopefully find useful. And, and that's part of the role model thing. That's part of the role model thing to recognize the missteps and recognize the accomplishments. And, and the takeaway, I think, here, as much as anything else, is the value of ambition. And, and parents should not be um, should not feel hesitant to to um, place their expectations on their child right up until the time that their child develops or, or shows up with the passion and the ambition. He's, he's getting out of bed. She's doing something. She's moving ahead and she's not just waiting for the stars to line up and for divine providence to solve all of their problems. But anyhow, it, what a great conversation. Nate, thanks for arranging this with Alec. Alec, thank you for, for uh, visiting with us. I'm so grateful for the invite. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. You've both been phenomenal hosts and I've been really glad to meet you both. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Of course, we'll link to Alex's channel and uh, his Instagram, by the way, has got beautiful. All, all of it's just beautiful, beautiful videos, beautiful um, media, and he's, he's got a, a lot to share. So we will link to all that. Alec, it's been a pleasure. Everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>